Since the Premier League began, over 4,000 players have plied their trade at the peak of English football. We've had your Cantonars, your Ginolas, your Bergkamps. We've had your Ronaldos, your Zlatans, your Beckhams. But we've also had your Agustin Delgados, your Shabani Nondas, your Neil Ardleys. Players who, despite their heady days in the top flight, the streets have forgotten. Today we remember them, obscure names who slip the mind but deserve a place back in the football narrative. This is the 11. Hey, Arthur. Hello, Ben. I absolutely love your pluralising of players' names. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those classic football cliches, isn't it? I like that. I like that. Um, and there are some cracking names. Today we're doing a 4-4-2. It's been a fun one to research because these are players who we feel have perhaps slipped through the cracks. They're not remembered these days, but for one reason or another, we feel they should be remembered. And, and that could be simply because we enjoyed watching them play. I'm sure you've got lots of suggestions at home, so please do get in touch with us as per usual. Uh, we're on Twitter. It's at 11pod. That's the word and not the number. OK, goalkeeper first. Ben, who have you gone for? Yes, uh, we need a nice obscure name between the sticks. And I've gone for a six foot four Austrian goalkeeper. Uh, he made 26 appearances for his country, Arthur. Any ideas? Absolutely no idea. <laughs> Jürgen Macho. Wow, that a is a throwback. from the past, <laughs> Jürgen Macho. Um, yeah, he started his career in, in humble circumstances, Jürgen, um, at First Vienna FC, um, which is a fantastic name for a football team mm. who are pretty much so named because they were the first team in Austria. They did actually have some success in their early history. They won the Metropa Cup, which was one of the first European championships of football, really, a little bit like the Champions League is now. But they, they now apply their trade in the fifth tier of Austrian football, which shows you just how humble it was a start for Jürgen. Um, but he did actually go on to play in the Premier League. Um, he made 22 appearances for Sunderland, where he was predominantly the second choice goalkeeper behind Thomas Sorensen. But I think the reason I wanted to remember Jürgen Macho today, not only because he has a great name, but also because of one particular appearance that he made. Um, and it was a game which I really enjoyed watching uh, against Liverpool. Sunderland were massive underdogs going into the game and he was having to deputise in goal because of injury. Uh, and the match finished in a nil-nil draw. Uh, he was the man of the match. He made a diving save to his right-hand side to uh, to deny Michael Owen in the first half. And I would really urge you to check this save out. It is incredible. Um, Owen glances the header. He sprawls to his right-hand side to get fingertips on it um, and just palm it past the post. It was a wonderful display of athleticism. In this particular game, he was actually described by Gerard Houllier, um as a goalkeeper with nine lives. He said they defended in a heroic way and Jürgen was at the forefront of that. Um, but Howard Wilkinson, his manager at Sunderland, was um, was unfortunately less complimentary. Rather than focusing on Jürgen's excellent display, he, he instead said that Jürgen would have struggled to catch a beach ball until he turned up today, which feels ridiculously Sorry. harsh. That was in response to his brilliant save. Yeah, he, he, he chose to focus on the fact that Jürgen Macho had looked awful in training rather than the fact that he'd had an absolute worldie of the display against Liverpool. Talk about a way to boost a player's confidence. I, I have to say, hearing that story, it's, it's surprising he didn't overtake Thomas Sorensen as number one. Yeah, it, it was certainly one of few excellent performances, but nevertheless one that's worthy of being remembered. Um, and the other interesting fact about Jürgen Macho, Obviously, Chelsea nowadays, one of the elite in English football, but it wasn't so long ago that they were more of a fourth place, fifth place Europa League style side until Roman Abramovich came in at Chelsea. And Jürgen Macho was actually the first signing of the Roman Abramovich era. Wow. When you think of all the money that came into the club, um, it's quite surprising to hear, but they signed him on a free transfer. Um, when he joined, Jürgen said, of course, I want to play first team football when I join up with Chelsea. It'll be up to me to show what I can do and compete with Carlo Cudicini. 
Uh, in the end, he was the fourth choice at Chelsea during his time there, and he made zero appearances. So uh, it didn't work out quite as well for him as you would have hoped. He did play for Austria, actually. He played for them at Euro 2008. Um, oh, so despite yeah. his lack of, of club appearances, he, he was deemed to be the best goalkeeper in Austria. He was competing with another sub-goalie in the Premier League, actually, Alex Manninger of Arsenal. Oh, yes. Another brilliant name. Uh, who have we got a left back, Arthur? A difficult choice for me to include this man because he's from Portsmouth. Oh, uh, and I've gone hurt. for Nadir Belhaj. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, I think the only way to describe <laughs> this man is swashbuckling. <laughs> he made runs of plenty down that left side for Portsmouth. Very much sort of second role was was defensive and his his main role was attacking and getting assists trying to trying to put threatening balls into the box mention of his name obviously doesn't conjure up happy memories for me because he was one of the scorers when Portsmouth beat Southampton 4-1 in 2010 that was a depressing day because Portsmouth finished 20th in uh, in Premier League and I thought this is we're in the division below them but this is a chance we can beat them yeah. and uh, and it was a frustrating one but fortunately they lost the final of the FA Cup that season so all good he was just a, a defender that I couldn't help but admire um, mm. just because of how bold he was I've got a lovely quote here from Tony Adams who was Portsmouth manager at the time yeah he said Nadir couldn't defend he used to give me <laughs> heart attacks bless him I suppose if Nadir had been good defensively we wouldn't have had him he'd be at Arsenal Liverpool or Man City which is a very good point. He was a defender that got everyone on the on the edge of their seat. He was very direct. He had energy and athleticism in abundance. He formed a, a lethal partnership with a fellow Algerian, Hassan Yebda. You're absolutely right. Belhadj was quite an exciting player to watch and he had slipped my mind. Um, but it's interesting you mention his nationality, Algeria. It really strikes me that over the years, the Premier League has welcomed some extraordinary Algerian talent and some extraordinary names that really bring back memories. I mean, the likes of Ali Benabia, um, Jamel Belmardi. Oh, um, he was brilliant. <laughs> Majid Bouguera. And there was just this period around the noughties where suddenly Algeria were producing talent after talent. And I, I remember them, us playing them, England playing them in the World Cup once. It, it feels like they've gone off the boil a little since. They've got the likes of Mares these days. They're, they, uh, they have. Mm. Yeah. Here and there, they have some, some serious talent. He finished his Premier League career. It was pretty brief, to be honest. He had a loan with Portsmouth, then made it permanent, uh, and then didn't, didn't really stick around. He's mm. made over 200 appearances in Qatar since 2010. Okay. And he actually still plays there. Um, so he's still going. And just a defender that I feel isn't remembered as, as much as he should have been. And perhaps if he was playing at one of those bigger clubs where there wasn't so much of a premium on, on defence because you know, they're attacking all the time. He would have been even more of a, a success. Uh, I can't help but feel his, his lack of defending could have impacted on Portsmouth's league position that season. It's also um, quite random. When I was at school, Belhaj became a bit of a, a, a term that you would use. You'd be like, oh, you're such a Belhaj. <laughs> I don't quite what know why. What school did you go to? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Did you just pick random obscure noughties footballers and yeah? I mean, honestly, this this podcast couldn't suit me more, really. Yeah, you're just such a buatza. That's just yeah, exactly. ridiculous. I'm really yeah. chuffed that you've picked Belhadj. Actually, he fits right into this. The streets of forgotten eleven. Certainly, a player that I've enjoyed being reminded about. And alongside him, I want another noughties defender. Actually, Arthur. One again that has hailed from an African nation, uh, and that's Kamil Zayat. He signed for Hull City for 2.5 million, which was a club record fee at the time for the Tigers. He was a committed and composed defender, um, but he had the potential to also be calamitous. Um, someone who was confident on the ball, uh, but made regular errors. Um, and this is summed up, if you like, by the fact that Zayat is one of only six players in Premier League history to have scored an own goal and conceded a penalty in the same game 
since the oh. turn of the millennium. Unfortunately, he he horribly sliced the clearance into his own net five minutes after the restart and then clumsily felled Louis Saha with a bizarre high foot challenge uh, in a match in the noughties, um, which led to that feat. In fact, own goals have kind of followed Zayat throughout his career. During his time uh, in the Premier League, he actually scored more own goals for um, than goals at the right end, three. So that meant he'd actually scored four own goals in just 55 Premier League appearances, uh, which is one of the one of the highest ratios of anyone ever. So he just had this sort of lackadaisical nature. Um, he was clumsy with his, his legs and his feet, and he found himself in awkward positions in the penalty area. Um, but he was one of those players that because of his, um, I guess because of his rambunctiousness and, and his ability to do the unexpected, um, fans generally took to him and kind of adopted him really as a bit of a cult hero. It's funny you should say all these own goals, the clumsiness, the yeah. all of that, because I, I, I say my overriding memory of him was that he was a rather good defender, but clearly not. I think people saw he had potential, but it didn't always show on the pitch. And I don't think it helped that around that time, you know, Hull were towards the first of the, the Premier League table. So um, there were lots of goals conceded in that time. But he had no lack of confidence in his own ability, Arthur, that's for sure. Um, he told the Mail during his time over here, Tottenham and West Ham were interested, but Hull wanted too much money for me. But I won't give up. If all goes well, I see myself at a bigger club than Hull. If I could land a move to Manchester United, Arsenal or Chelsea, it would make all Guineans proud of me. He didn't have much loyalty. Self-confidence. Yeah, he didn't have much loyalty to the Tigers who'd given him a chance in in England. Um, And funnily enough, the move to Manchester United, Arsenal, or Chelsea never came off. He ended up at Konyaspor in Turkey, um, finishing sort of mid-table in the Turkish league. There's such a lack of respect by actually not just saying like I maybe see myself moving one day but actually specifically mentioning clubs is just yeah a little bit of a kick in the teeth it is a bit of a kick in the teeth and um he's not the only whole player who was dreaming of bigger things if you like um, and it never came off out of that whole city side that were in the Premier League I was reading an article um which suggested that well the name itself is funny um the name of the article in whole city live is a poker player, scouts, and football managers. What happened next to all 27 Hull City signings made by Phil Brown? Which is fantastic. <laughs> An uh, absolute treasure trove. Yeah. Um, it turns out Caleb Folan, if you remember yep. him, he went yep. on to play in Myanmar. Wow. Um, Craig Fagan, do you remember him? Uh, uh, yeah, rings he, a bell. He went off to play in Brunei. Um, and Anthony Gardner who uh, was an ex-Tottenham defender as well. He's now a poker player. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, that Phil Brown crop at Hull never really went on to big things, and Kamar Zayat fits that mould and is uh, welcomed into the streets of Forgotten Eleven. Very, very good selection. And alongside him at centre-back, I've decided to go for Dean Leacock. (laughs) Honestly. Dean Leacock! (laughs) <laughs> oh god he was in that derby side wasn't he yeah he was a part of that iconic derby team obviously 11 points statistically the worst team in premier league history mm. but i think people remember mostly his his centre-back partner who was claude davis yes uh, otherwise known as calamity claude he never he actually... made that step up to the premier league claude davis because he was okay in the championship yeah, there's a few of those players who have looked a cut above and been ruthlessly exposed when they've played against quicker mm. and better players in the Premier League. And Dean actually started his career pretty well. He made his debut for Fulham at the age of 18 and was tipped by many. And this is according to Wikipedia, so uh, don't shoot me down. Is <laughs> <laughs> tipped by many to become the next Rio Ferdinand. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that so close. So close. There we go. Um, and, it, and it was going well for him. And actually, he's a player who has been affected by injuries quite badly. When he was doing well at Fulham, injury struck. He was part of an awful team in the Premier League. He didn't necessarily stand out individually as one of their absolute worst players but then in the championship started playing well again and then got an injury 
Um, he's just been a bit unlucky in that, in that uh, capacity. Mm. And I think part of Dean Leacock's uh, appeal as a player who I felt was, was worthy of recognition and has perhaps been, uh, been forgotten is um, yeah. his iconic look. He yes. wore a bandana. <laughs> Which doesn't seem suitable in Derby, but go well, for it, Dean. Also, also, it seems a little bit more appropriate for perhaps a more creative player, a yeah. goal scorer, if you like. Um, I hear you. I just enjoyed reading an article in the Irish Examiner. Um, <laughs> it, was a, it was a Lee Mackey column called Angry Fans. Right. And it's very entertaining. And there was a, a guy who was just incredibly annoyed at Dean's um, headwear. He said, can you explain to me what it is about Derby and silly headgear? I talk about <laughs> Dean Leacock and that bandana he wears week in, week out. The last time Derby were relegated, they had Taribo West playing with green ribbons in his hair with a record for defending as bad as theirs. You'd think they'd keep their heads down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just really? He, he that, just seems overly annoyed. I mean, it's I guess he it's really does. That's thing. also... I mean, it's from Sean O'Driscoll in Tipperary. I'm hoping it's not Sean O'Driscoll, ex-Doncaster manager, but yeah, you never fingers know. crossed. It's, <laughs> it's probably a cultural thing. Well, I just never remember Dean Leacock really filling anyone with confidence during his time in the Premier League. No, I agree. And actually, in recent years, his list of clubs sounds very much like a who's who of non-league. He played for Whitehawk, then he went to Welling. Yeah. Uh, a brief spell at Billericay and then at Low Stoft Town, where he, he currently is. I think oh, he's wow. probably close to retirement. But yeah, a player who could have been, I think, very good. And perhaps that kind of hit of playing in such a terrible team and being kind of ruthlessly exposed on the biggest stage, perhaps that sort of hit him and meant that he wouldn't fulfil his potential. I think he would have been a decent shout in the unfulfilled potential eleven as well. I think he probably would have done, Arthur, actually. Yeah, really pleased to get Dean on board. And I can see Dean Leacock and Camille Zayat forming quite a, a calamitous partnership that would be great <laughs> for fans to watch. So absolutely, welcome to the streets of Forgotten Eleven, Dean. Let's complete this back four with a player that I think a lot of Celtic fans will remember quite fondly. Um, but I actually want to pick up on his time in the Premier League, which was shorter than perhaps it, it should have been. And that's Didier Agat. I have to say, I wanted to include Didier myself. Funny enough, <laughs> but I realised he was a right back, not a left back. <laughs> it's it's because the streets have forgotten him. They really have. And they really do need to remember what Didier brought to the game. He played 122 times for Celtic. Uh, and he chipped in with nine goals. And it was a really successful spell. During that time, Celtic reached the UEFA Cup final in 2003. And I mean, I've seen a few of his highlights. One in particular was, was an incredible mazy run. He was so quick, Didier Agat, um, and, and one of the original attacking fullbacks, much like Nadir Belhaj in a way. And after his Celtic debut, Martin O'Neill described him as absolutely brilliant. I did not think he would last more than 60 minutes, but he has so much strength and pace. He can dance past players as if they aren't there. Um, and actually, Martin O'Neill liked him so much uh, that he decided to bring him to Aston Villa with him in 2006. Um, and this is the period of time I wanted to pick up on. He was 31 at the time, um, so probably a bit past his best, um, but was still expected to be an asset, having had a successful trial with the villains but in the end he had the pace but no real end product he, he didn't really have the poise required um, for nailing down a spot in the Premier League so he only actually made six sub appearances never starting a game uh, and was released from his short-term contract a little bit later um, but I really enjoyed reading about Didier Agat. He's, he's got such an interesting story. Uh, this is someone who um, burst his appendix before his playing career even began and his life was at risk. He was then found to have no cartilage in his right knee. Um, so physically, almost everything was going against him, but he still managed to carve out this career um, as one of very few players from the island of Réunion, um, which is just off the coast of Africa. It's a French-owned um, French island. He was one of very few players from La Reunion, really, to make it um, in professional football. I was wondering if he was the most noteworthy player from Reunion, but he's actually not. Um, can you think of any, any others, Arthur, off the top of your head? I'm imagining 
if they're one of Réunion's most established players, they would have been a very established French international. And I'm Possibly. trying to think who that might have been. And I'm struggling. <laughs> well, we've got a few you could have cho- chosen. Um, Laurent Robert. Oh, very um, good. Dimitri Payet. Wow. And Cinema Pongo, all oh. from Réunion. Um, and they do actually have their own national team, but they're not recognised by FIFA. So like you said, um, many of their players do go on to, to play for the French national team. Um, and there's an interesting story of, of football in general at Réunion, because um, recently one of um, Didier's old clubs, J.S. saint pierre um, they're a club, obviously, that are from the islands, and they reached the last 32 of the French Cup last year, which was an incredible achievement for a, a club on the island. It was only the second time in history that a team had reached the last 32 um, from Réunion, but they lost, unfortunately, an extra time to Epinal. Um, do you know who was playing for uh, JS Saint-Péroise um, that day last year? He used to play for Blackpool. Blackpool. Elliot Grandin. Yes, Elliot Grandin. <laughs> it's actually Elliot Grandin. Elliot Grandin <laughs> was playing for JS Saint Poiras um, in the it's French amazing. Cup last 32. Uh, so there's I, all kinds of connections. I had read about JS Saint Poiras playing in that because it's an amazing achievement for an, a French overseas nation to, to, to get a team into that French Cup because mm. the standard is so much higher. I think in reading about J.S. Sampiroas, I, I read that Roger Miller was one of their famous <laughs> ex-players. So they've clearly got some um, got some talent back in the day. Um, yeah, but I for mean, Elliot Grandin to be boosting their ranks these days, a Premier League icon and and probably, I mean, worthy of a, a place in this Streets Forgot 11 on his own. Definitely. So, and, and just more encouragement, really, for, for clubs to get their scouts out to reunion because there's clearly mm-hmm. something good going on there. Didier, obviously, as you can hear, there are elements to his career that stand out. But where I wanted to take this really is what's happened after he retired and after his spell at Aston Villa. <laughs> he's, he's done several things with his life, Arthur. He portrayed a Rangers striker in the Robert Duval movie, A Shot at Glory. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, his film career didn't really take off. Um, so he's taken to managing lower league football teams. Um, he's been the manager of Durham City, <laughs> where he was appointed by their owner, Olivier Bernard, the former oh, wow. Newcastle. That is, that is an excellent tandem at work. <laughs> I love that. So um, his connections oh. with other obscure Premier League right backs goes on. Um, he's now managing Chester Le Street. I mean, it's, it's great that he's still involved in the game. I'm only sad, really, that a player that had a reasonably successful time in the SPL is relatively unknown at Premier League level. And, and that's why I felt he should be in our Streets of Forgotten eleven. Now Didier Gatton, he turns, he scores! A breakthrough for Celtic! Well, we're talking about players here that the streets have forgotten. And of course, you can get in touch with us at 11pod to suggest yours. I wanted to take a break to focus on some of the managers that maybe we have forgotten over the years at the managed Premier League clubs. So I've got three to discuss, Arthur, and I wanted your thoughts on which of these perhaps should be managing our 11 today. The first one, uh, do you remember him? Alan Perran. Yes, Portsmouth manager. Correct, spot on. Um, He was the Portsmouth manager in 2005. And I've perhaps been a bit cheeky here because he was best known for keeping Portsmouth in the division and relegating the Saints um, that year. We had Harry Redknapp managing yes. us. It was a <laughs> tragic was a, was a time. Yeah. The South Coast were hurting that year. Um, yeah. yeah, he inherited the club in 16th place. They were four points above the relegation zone with, with seven games to go. Um, but he did keep them up, including a 4-1 win over Southampton um, in the South Coast derby. Uh, But unfortunately, he was quite a controversial character. He lost the dressing room. He fell out with Steve Stone, uh, which is the last thing you want to do, believe me. Um, He had a totalitarian approach and he rubbed senior players up the wrong way. Um, At one point, accusing Andy Griffin of being scared of his own shadow. 
Andy bit back, of course. He apparently responded, you should not be pointing the finger and saying you are scared. Well, I am scared of spiders. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for that, Andy. That's great. Um, but on the 24th of November 2005, Perran was sacked by Portsmouth, uh, having won only twice in that second season of his. Oh, wow. um, so I don't really have particularly, you know, strong memories of Alan Perran, but I, I was kind of surprised that someone who essentially kept Portsmouth in the division has kind of gone completely quiet in terms of the football narrative. Yeah, I think there were rumours that... Uh... <laughs> that last game of the season, which Portsmouth, of course, lost to West Brom to send yeah. Southampton down, that, that that was actually a, a planned defeat. So perhaps we can't place the blame for one of those defeats on at his doorstep. But for this role, taking charge of the Streets Forgot 11, he's certainly a manager who won't be the first to spring to mind for many, many yeah. Premier League fans. <laughs> Well, well, something tells me you're not going to want him managing this 11. Uh, I would rather not. (laughs) So we'll move on to number two. uh, And this is uh, a little bit more recent. In 2014, um, another manager who kept his side in the division but lost his job pretty soon after. uh, And that was Pepe Mel. Pepe Mel was the West (laughs) Brom manager. Honestly, I think I had completely forgotten Pepe. <laughs> so that West Brom team were they were they one of their weaker teams? Or they was were it, doing was okay, it? to be fair. Um, it, he actually took over after Steve Clark sacking with the club in 14th position, and I really clearly remember at the time thinking that this was an incredibly harsh sacking. I think when Steve Clark initially joined West Brom, there were a few doubts. He hadn't really got the managerial experience, despite having been a successful assistant. Um, But he seemed to be doing a pretty decent job. It'd be interesting to hear from West Brom fans if they disagree. But um, it was a harsh sacking. And in in came Mel, having had a reasonably successful time at Betis. Um, He took seven games, though, to win his first match, with West Brom slipping down the table. Um, But eventually it came with a 2-1 victory over Swansea. Uh, And on the 12th of May 2014, one day after the end of the season, where he led the Baggies to 17th place, he left by mutual consent with a record of three wins in 17 games. So he actually managed to take West Brom from lower mid-table into a relegation scrap, um, but just about keep them up. He described his time at West Brom as being very English, which is really insightful. Thank you, Pepe. Uh, He said, I tried to change their way of seeing football. It was difficult. They had a very messy system. I turned it the other way around without changing it to being Spanish. Um, And I think what I quite like about Pepe now is similar to Steve Bruce on one of our previous episodes. He has actually published three books. Um, They are called Liar, The Road to the Afterlife and The Test. So do find them on all good bookshelves. I'm hoping they're better than Steve Bruce's attempts mm. at uh, entering the world of, of authoring. You know, trying to instigate a Spanish style of football at West Brom, they historically do struggle to stay in the Premier League, or in recent times certainly have struggled to stay in the Premier League for a particularly long periods of time. And when you're struggling against relegation, it's not a very easy style of play to instigate. Mm. I think we saw with the likes of Swansea who had played that kind of Spanish style tiki-taka football in their promotion season and then continued to employ it in the Premier League and it did work well. That's the exception really. But when you're coming into, as he says, an English style football club and trying to, to start playing this way when you're not necessarily one of the strongest clubs in the division, it's not a very easy thing to do. I really have no idea which is the third manager coming up, but you know, you see whether it's Remy Gard, mm. uh, a manager who's spent his career in France and then comes over for a loan season uh, that isn't a roaring success in this country. It's often difficult because you've got your established methods and perhaps they don't translate so well to this league. A very good assessment. Funnily enough, I did consider Remy Gard, but instead <laughs> I went for a manager that sandwiches Mel and Perran during his time as a Premier League coach. Uh, that's in 2008, and it's Ricky Sprager. 
I mean, you seem just dumbfounded. Get, all of these names are just phenomenal nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, he was the he was Good the Sunderland Ricky. coach, uh, if you remember. Yeah. And again, he kept them up. So he was an experienced backroom staff at uh, Manchester United and Bolton. Um, but he was appointed caretaker manager at Sunderland following the departure of Roy Keane uh, in 2008. He took charge of the team for their match against Manchester United, um, but he actually lost that game, but then followed it up soon after with a 4-0 victory over West Bromwich Albion and a 4-1 win over Hull City, uh, which featured an own goal by none other than Camille Zayat. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> um, so he actually did reasonably well. He was always coy, though, of taking uh, the job on permanently, um, although he did eventually get that that 18-month contract uh, after guiding them to survival on the final day of the season. He resigned as manager, though, having won six out of 26 games. Um, he actually quite modestly said, I've had a chat with Niall Quinn and I think they need a bigger name to carry the club further. I've done everything I needed to. Um, so he really was a caretaker boss, even though he took the job on permanently. Um, I think probably the highlight of his time at Sunderland, he managed to get the very best out of Kenwyn Jones up front. So much so that he claimed he would have resigned on the spot if the Black Cats had sold him to Spurs for 15 million. Um, which, wow. to be honest, given he left a year later for eight, seems like a blooming good deal that they should have really taken. I have to say, Kenwyn Jones is one of those strikers who there have been times when he's been absolutely unplayable. I think mm. when he was he was a Stoke City player, he had some serious skills. I think Ricky ticks that quite key box in this Streets Forgot Eleven in the sense that Sunderland is his only ever team yes. that he's managed where it's not been a reserve side or a youth side. He's managed the under-17s, 19s and 21s at Scotland. <laughs> um, and perhaps in employing the Man U reserve coach, they were looking for a bit of a sort of Mike Phelan effect. Um, yes. I think that's become a bit of a phenomenon since Mike Phelan, obviously sitting behind Alex Ferguson, everyone was like, oh, this man, he's going to have absorbed all of his techniques. I think Ricky probably is deserving of the uh, position as, as our team's manager. Maybe Pepe could be the director of football. He could try and impose a very English style. Or Pepe could be manager and Ricky could be our reserve team manager. Oh, man, we're getting complicated now. Alan Perran's <laughs> feeling left out. Yeah. Let's go Ricky Sprager. Well done, Ricky. Okay. He's the manager of our Streets of Forgotten Eleven. Regarding that, Kevin Jones has gone nowhere. It's as simple as that. So onto the midfield, we have a centre midfielder up for grabs today. Um, so that's a vote over on our Twitter page at 11pod. We'll run through the nominations at the end of today's show. Um, but first of all, let's look at the wings and the left side, just ahead of Belhad, Arthur. Who have we got? I've gone for a potentially lethal combination between Portsmouth's Belhaj and Southampton's Ronnie Eklund. <laughs> Oh, it's a match made in heaven. It is. It really is. He's a player who I've long since been fascinated in, Ronnie Eklund, because he only had one season at Southampton. And it's the story of his signing that I think is the most fascinating. And I'd like to recount that story for you now. Okay. Um, in 1994, Southampton and Barcelona were both at the same pre-season training camp in the Netherlands. Right, And then Southampton manager Alan Ball knew Johan Cruyff. And so okay. he went to dinner with the Barcelona manager. And once they were done with dinner, Cruyff asked, how's your squad looking? What are you looking for? And Ball replied, a left-sided midfielder. Cruyff somewhat cryptically said, I'll leave you a present in the morning. And then in the morning when Alan <laughs> I mean, went that's down... that's not creepy at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. In the morning when Alan went down to breakfast, he found that Barcelona had left. But Ronnie Eklund was waiting in reception for him. <laughs> He's a young Danish midfielder um, who had been literally left there on his own to train with Saints. And he signed for the season on loan. And it's his relationship on the pitch with Matt Letissier that was the reason I wanted to pick him because okay. it kind of slightly goes under the radar, 
but Matt Letissier rates him as the best midfielder he's ever played with, wow. uh, perhaps the best player he's ever played with. And they struck up a telepathic link, the two of them. Mm-hmm. Eklund very much on Letissier's wavelength, on his level. And I've actually got a clip from an interview where Matt describes just what was so great about Ronnie. From that very first training session, he was just like, oh, the lads were looking around going, jeez, this guy can't get in the Barcelona team. <laughs> we're like, whoa. And he was just super. His first touch was brilliant. His movement off the ball, he was so clever, a very brainy footballer. And that was just heaven for me to play alongside him. That interview was with Graham Hunter, and I just think it's a bit of an insight into just what a player this guy was. Yeah, He scored five goals that season, and then sadly he had some back injuries, back problems, and Southampton's medical department wanted him to go under the knife and have surgery, and it's something that Ronnie didn't want to do, and so mm-hmm. his time ended with Saints, and actually those injuries did somewhat plague him in his career. Finally, at the end of his career, after some injury problems um he he struck up a decent spell with san jose earthquakes oh, in, um, in the early noughties yeah exactly and there's a goal that i i would urge you to check out on youtube which is so matt Letissier in style one of his teammates flicks the ball up to him and he strikes it on the volley into the top corner for me it's a case of what might have been with ronnie eckland mm. he had an eye for a pass. He was one step ahead of play. He had incredible skill and pace and finishing ability. He, I think, genuinely could have been one of Saints' all-time greatest players if he made that transfer permanent and not had the injuries he had. So certainly worthy of mention. Very few people really know the name, but I, I love the way his transfer transpired. I love the fact that we've got a player in there that that some won't have heard of, but nice to to reminisce about the, the qualities of Ronnie Eklund. And I guess another one in a long line of Scandinavian players that have made it at Saints, Arthur. We had Joe Tessum and the Svensons and uh, Klaus Lundukvam. Ronnie Eklund. A fine tradition. Mm. Well, uh, on the right side of the midfield, um, I've returned the favour and gone for a player who did play for Reading at one point in his career, uh, and that's Sol Ki Hyun. Very good player. I love it. Yes, him. he was a um, a South Korean wide man uh, that you might have forgotten about. Uh, he was very technically gifted. Um, he had a wonderful right foot, uh, and he took a number of set pieces during his time uh, in the Premier League. Uh, he was six foot two, so pretty tall, actually, for a wide man. Um, uh, but like I say, he just had this wicked uh, right foot. He could hit the ball with great power, uh, but he also had wonderful control and his crossing ability was quite fantastic at times. Uh, he first played in England for Wolverhampton Wanderers, um, but he did then make appearances in the Premier League for Reading and Fulham uh, when Wolves failed to get promoted he he felt his ceiling was higher and he moved on um he was known as the sniper in south korea (laughs) (laughs) on the face of it uh he had everything necessary to succeed he had a versatility he could play wide he could play through the middle and he had strength in the air Um, but the reason i wanted to remember sol ki hyun in in today's 11 was his knack for scoring vital pivotal goals He played for South Korea in the 2002 World Cup, which they joint hosted. uh, And he actually scored the goal in the last 16 against Italy um, when they would eventually reach the semi-finals, which was an incredible achievement for the nation. Not only that, but he also scored Wolves' 7,000th goal um, in their history. So again, he's he's heralded for that. Uh, and he also scored the winner in Reading's first ever Premier League away win against Sheffield United in 2006. But perhaps the most incredible pivotal goal, he was the first South Korean footballer to score in the history of the UEFA Champions League during his time at Andelect when he was younger. Wow, that is that's quite a stat. So he, he was a player that... I think many people would have forgotten because he never really reached dizzy heights here in England. Um, But he was loved in South Korea. And actually, once he'd had his spell in England, he went and played back there. Um, And and this was shown really in the build up to the 2002 World Cup, where he was chosen to star in Nike's advert out in South Korea (laughs) called The Secret Tournament. (laughs) It was uh, directed by Terry Gilliam. 
And uh, uh-huh. when I read out the list of names in the advert, it makes it quite amusing, really. Um, it was Thierry Henry, Ronaldo, Edgar Davids, Fabio Cannavaro, Francesco Totti, Ronaldinho, Luis Figo, Eric Cantona, and Solky Hyun. <laughs> it, <laughs> it feels a little bit of a kind of sympathy vote that got him in, doesn't it, really? Um, yeah, it does a bit. Those Nike adverts really were iconic. I remember him as a, a very good player. And actually, frankly, that 2002 World Cup was a phenomenal achievement for South Korea. There were some slightly dirty tactics on play um, in the... Did they knock out Italy? They did, yes. Yeah. And Seoul scored the goal in that one. Oh, there we go. He's, he's, a, he's a big match player and I think certainly worthy of recognition in this team. One of our centre midfielders is up for grabs, but who's going to partner him today? So I've chosen a player that will not be warmly remembered in the Premier League. (laughs) Uh, And I'm quite interested to see perhaps Spurs fans, if you'd like to get in touch and let us know what your memories of this man are. I've chosen Hossam Ghali. Yeah, he was a bit of a villain, wasn't he, during his time? He really, really was. I can't help but feel incredibly sorry for him. He was a good player when he arrived in the Premier League from Feyenoord. But his time at Spurs all boiled down to one moment of head loss. He experienced that ritual humiliation of being a subbed substitute. He replaced Steve Malbronk in the first half um, after an injury to, to the Frenchman and was then subbed off again after 60 minutes. And he was so frustrated that he took off his shirt and kind of petulantly threw it to the ground. Yeah, Um, yeah. And he just never played for Spurs again. He had half a season at Derby on loan uh, with Paul Jewell in the uh, the infamous 11-point season. And things went well at Derby, all things considered. I think they were pretty much relegated by the time he signed for them. (laughs) But he didn't want to drop down to the championship, so... Uh, In January 2011, Harry Redknapp thought he'd give him another chance at Spurs. Whilst he was warming up and preparing to be substituted on late on in the game, he was booed by a large number of Spurs fans. And in light of this, Harry Redknapp decided against bringing him on. (laughs) So I just feel bad for him because one incident trashed his career. And I I do feel like that, that is a horrible moment to realize that you're playing awfully you're going to get subbed off and he was naturally incredibly frustrated and I think he had an interview in which he he said you know how disappointing it was to to receive that reaction from the fans he acknowledged that he just had an awful day was was really angry with himself at playing so badly yeah and then he I, I suppose symbolically throwing the shirt on the ground is an awful thing to do but I, I just think not giving him the chance of redemption it is a bit harsh, really, on the on the guy. It was, and I remember him being actually a reasonably talented player as he was coming through. He was certainly someone that they had high hopes for at, at Tottenham. But um, I guess in the end, his biggest achievement would have been with his national team, playing seventy times for for Egypt. Well, he played seventy nine times for Al Ali, but other than that, Egypt is pretty much the the club he played most for. I really enjoyed his kind of late career jumping between two of Saudi Arabia's biggest clubs. He spent 2009-10 at Al Nasser, and then he moved to Al Ali from 10 to 13. He had a a brief spell in Belgium for a year before (laughs) going back to Al Ali from 14 to 17, then back to Al Nasser from 17 to 18, (laughs) and now back to Al Ali in 2018. I mean, there's Um, nothing that's going to endear yourself to the fans like that. (laughs) Exactly. I know football's very... Those two clubs are the two biggest clubs alongside Al Halal in Saudi Arabia. I do wonder whether that's the equivalent of of moving from Man U to Man City and just not really being able to decide between them. So just just popping to and fro between the two. It could um, be. He's certainly a player who will be remembered probably by Spurs fans in a negative light, but certainly those outside of, of the Spurs clan, I think, won't really remember this man. I like it. Well done, Hossam. Steve Bennett. The strike force. Ben, who have you picked? 
Uh, I've gone for a six foot three burly striker from Argentina, someone who doesn't fit the, the classic South American mold. Um, and he's known for his fairly short spell at Everton. It's Dennis Straquilersi. <laughs> uh, yes. Welcome, Dennis, to the 11. Um, I had forgotten about him, but it was actually a real pleasure reading up about someone who became an unlikely cult hero at Goodison Park. Um, God loves a trier is perhaps the, uh, the phrase that best sums up Dennis. He's actually still playing in the Argentinian third division uh, with Union de Sunchales, where he incidentally started his career. Uh, and to be honest, the lesser leagues um, of South America and, and Abu Dhabi is pretty much where he spent the majority of his career. It, he actually had a spell uh, in the Italian fourth division and he's never lasted more than one season at any given club. So it's not exactly a glittering career that Dennis has had, but nevertheless, his best season came in 2010-11 for Tigre in Argentina, where his tally of 21 goals made him the joint top scorer in the division. And that, and the fact that his agent, who incidentally was also Diego Maradona's former agent, sent a DVD of his highlights reel to David Moyes, managed to convince the Scottish manager to bring him to the Premier League as the solution to injuries to Yakubu and Jermaine Beckford at Everton. Um, so sure enough, Dennis signed uh, a season-long loan um, with Everton and he was given the squad number 11, despite the fact that Moyes had actually never seen him play. Um, he had limited opportunities in the first team. Uh, in fact, he had to wait until January to make his first league sc- lead start um, playing against Bolton Wanderers. Uh, but he did actually have a bit of a rich vein of form where he scored his first goal against Fulham in the FA Cup fourth round. Uh, and then in the next game, he received a standing ovation after a key role in a 1-0 win over Manchester City. Uh, and perhaps his highlight um, of his time at Everton was scoring in a win over Chelsea in February. Uh, he was a player who worked incredibly hard, the sort that would fly onto horizontal headers in Andy Gray style. Uh, and he was remembered for his rabid work rate. He said, I think the affection I got from people was because of the way I played, throwing myself to the ground and heading the ball. I wanted to win whatever it took. And his innocent enthusiasm and endearing personality meant that he uh, he managed to get away from any of the vitriolic chants um, on, in, on the terraces because, frankly, he really wasn't very good. But his work ethic was outstanding. And as a result, I think the fans sort of took him on as one of their own, really. You want your signings to be of the highest quality. That's obviously the primary objective. But if they're not that good, the least you can ask for is that they work themselves into the ground. At least he's making diving headers and trying to score these goals, albeit almost all of them were missing. Who's going to play alongside Dennis the Menace? A Coventry City legend. Michael Mifsud. (laughs) The Maltese international, right? Well, pretty much Malta's only ever uh, quality (laughs) player. Um, He joined Coventry from Norwegian club Lillestrom, um, where he'd caught the eye in a couple of summer, and this is a throwback, Intertoto Cup games. Yes, the Intertoto Cup. Whatever happened Um, to that? Absolutely. So he was playing against Newcastle and was was impressive, and he was voted uh, in Norway the best foreign player in 2006. He was a five foot five forward, um, so he was a little nippy forward, and perhaps appropriately, therefore, he was nicknamed the Mosquito. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, he was just a bit of a pain in well, the ass. He was just, yeah, pretty much, I imagine. Um, and also, I think there are quite a few of them in in, in Malta, so it's just a, a bit of casual <laughs> stereotyping. <laughs> um, and he is known most. Um, amongst Coventry fans and amongst English football fans for scoring twice as Coventry City sensationally beat Sir Alex Ferguson's Man United 2-0 at Old Trafford in the League Cup. And the second was an absolute bullet following a layoff by, uh, I believe, former Reading player Jay Tab. Yes, yeah, he did play for Reading. Um, 
Another he a good player. diminutive player. He scored 17 goals in 2007-2008 for Coventry. And then it just petered out a little bit. I think he had a bit of an attitude because he wanted to leave for Bristol City. The transfer was all but done, but then it fell through. And I think we've seen with Peter Odom Wingy and those those sorts of players, when you agitate for a move and you think it's all done, you probably sort of waltz around the place thinking you're out of there and then you're sticking around and it's probably a bit of bad blood uh, going on. Um, he had a he had a loan at Barnsley uh, mm. where he had some initial form and then it tailed away. And then he went back to Malta. His career seems to be punctuated by moments where he would he would head. To, I think he played in Bundesliga 2 and didn't really quite hit the ground running. So he popped back to Malta, banged them in. Then he went to Norway uh, and then obviously Coventry and, and English football and then back to Malta. And right. every time he returns to Malta, it's like he's he's a massive fish in a tiny, tiny pond because... Frankly, I think their international team isn't the strongest, but their domestic league is is not great. We saw Franny Jeffers uh, ply his trade there, one goal in one appearance. Um, I think he scored 145, 150 goals in in Malta. He is 42nd on the all-time leaderboard for international caps. Uh, He's got 143 caps for Malta. One cap above the likes of Lillian Turam, uh, <laughs> he's one cap above Messi on the all-time on the all-time caps list um, oh I love so... that I really like that pick actually Arthur um, it's a shame he never got to play in the Premier League Michael Mifsud but actually in the history of the Premier League out of interest there was one Maltese player who did play at the highest level um, and that was in the inaugural Premier League season uh, when Dylan Kerr managed to make an appearance uh, whilst playing for Leeds. Name. Yeah, he, um, he's actually, he played for Reading, funnily enough. He was a left-back um, and he is currently the manager of Chakuma Cha Madvijajila, who uh, play in South Africa. Well, Mifsud and uh, Strakulersi, big and small. What a strike force. Baines with the ball in. Strakulersi. Really connects with a header. Now he intercepts. He has provided them with an outboard and a real physical presence up there. So first up in the up for grabs centre midfield slot, we have a nomination from our friends at the United Mates Football Podcast. Let's see who they've gone for. Hello, this is Kaitel, one of the hosts of the United Mates Football Podcast. Joe, we've been chatting about this a bit. We, we threw a few names out there, but I think there's one in particular that we'd like to run with. The name we are going with is none other than Damien Francis. Kai, what, what a player Damien was. What a player, what is Damien Francis, all of the above. He started his career at Wimbledon and uh, scored a few goals there. So I think that caught the eye of, uh, of Norwich, who picked him up and he carried on his goal scoring form there decently from midfield. His next step was uh, signing for Wigan. He joined the Latics after they were promoted to the Premier League. And, you know, they were looking for a bit of steel in that midfield, a few goals as well, but it didn't quite work out. What what was the rest of his journey, Joe? So, yeah, as you said, Kai, he went to Wigan. He was there for a season. He did score one goal in the Premier League, but only one goal. And then um, he headed off to Hertfordshire after Wigan and he went to play for Watford um, when they also just got promoted. And he was maybe a little bit better there yeah he was a little bit better he scored three goals that season but of course um Watford would go down it was quite a poor Watford side beyond the one goal for Wigan he he also had one solitary cap for the Jamaica national side as well which is nothing to be scoffed at so I think Damien Francis what a man what a career sort of did the streets forget him we did until we had this conversation so uh yeah Hmm, Damien Francis. Yeah, love that. Thank you, Kaitel and Joe. Do check out United Mates Football Podcast, of course. Um, they do some great stuff over there. Um, I remember him mainly from his time at Watford when they got promoted into the Premier League. Um, I remember him playing in the midfield with the likes of Gavin Mahn and uh, Hammer Buatza. Was that when they had Marlon King up front? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Great and actually, player. that was where Ashley Young kind of came to the fore. Arthur, you've, you've picked someone as well. I have indeed. He's a player who only had one season in the Premier League, so he right. won't be that well remembered. He played most of his career in the Championship. 
I've gone for Akos Buzaki. Oh, yes, you have. <laughs> I love it. The QPR midfielder. Absolutely. He's a player that I've just always loved. I don't really know why, but he's just a player who had an eye for a screamer. I think he could have been in the Worldies eleven. QPR and Plymouth were his two main uh, affiliations in the, in the in England. And the QPR fans nicknamed Akos Buzaki the White Pele. Well, <laughs> so, understandably uh, so. A serious player. And actually, you mentioned um, one of those weird situations with Jurgen Macho being one of Chelsea's first signings. He was actually one of Mourinho's first signings at Porto in 2002. Very niche. <laughs> I didn't even know he played for Porto. He looked very, very comfortable with the ball at his feet. Could pick a pass, could strike a ball from distance. And always, for me, looking a cut above from centre midfield. He scored 10 league goals in 2009-10. No doubt all of them were extraordinary from, from distance. <laughs> it just seemed that every time Southampton played against QPR or Plymouth, Buzaki looked the most dangerous player on that pitch. Uh, it actually shocks me to find that he only had 20 caps for Hungary's international side. I don't know whether you have any any fond memories of him uh, being a Reading fan. I imagine you've... Uh, Reading have faced him quite a few times then. Yeah, I came up against Bazaki quite a lot, actually, um, in the championship. Um, and it's nice to remember names like him, really, because I, I think we've always got a tendency to, to pick out the players that that perhaps have done something of particular note. And, and Akos Bazaki was just very solid, wasn't he? he? He always seemed to perform at a kind of six or seven. Be interesting to hear from some QPR fans what they made of him. And they obviously got the chance to vote him into the streets of Forgotten Eleven at 11 pod. I um, I wanted to put forward someone, Arthur, uh, to compete who had played for a side that were perhaps a little bit more successful. This player um, was actually part of the successful Chelsea team in 2004-05 that won 95 points. They won the Premier League title, they won the League Cup and they reached the semi-finals of the Champions League. Yet still, I'd completely forgotten of his entire existence. And that's Yuri Jarishik. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Yuri Jarishik. What a man. Uh, he was a Czech international. And in January, they paid three million for the services of this combative midfielder after an impressive spell at um, CSKA Moscow. He could cover in the midfield slot just in front of the defence. He could drive forward from deep, break up play and show athleticism between defence and attack, or at least that's what they thought they were getting at Chelsea. Um, but in actual fact, Yuri Yarishik did really flatter to deceive. And he only made 14 appearances, mainly from the bench um, that season. Enough to claim a winner's medal, but nothing really to put him in the fold for starting the following season. So he headed out on loan. Chelsea brought in Michael Essien to replace him and he went to Birmingham City, where he was actually the team's joint top scorer, scoring eight goals, mainly known for these pile drivers from distance. He scored some really impressive goals in that season, um, which conflicted slightly with the defensive side of his game that he was displaying at CSKA in Moscow. I think one of his greatest goals was um, up against Bolton keeper UC Askelainen. He made it into our bargain 11, where he moved the ball cleverly onto his left foot and, and with a neat shuffle beat the defender before a thunderbolt into the top corner. But he did actually fall out with Steve Bruce eventually, and um, it all ended quite sourly at Birmingham before he moved on uh, to Celtic and, and elsewhere. One thing about Yuri Yarishik, despite the fact that perhaps he was a little underwhelming in the Premier League. He had an amazing knack of winning silverware. Indeed, throughout his playing career, he won six Czech League titles, one Russian Premier League title, one English Premier League title, and one SBL title with Celtic, which is really impressive. When I was researching Arthur, I was looking up these six Czech League titles and thinking, you know, blimey, Sparta Prague's dominance in, in the Czech Republic at that time was quite striking. And I found out that actually at the moment, Ludogorets in Bulgaria are on 10 consecutive league titles. And um, so at the moment, that's perhaps the, the building 
ground, but the most ever in history is Skonteriga in Latvia, who won 14 consecutive titles wow. until 2004. And the Lincoln Red Imps in Gibraltar, who also won 14 up until 2016. So when you put it into context of not being the most competitive league, I guess Yuri Yarishik has an average amount of silverware, but still for, for quite an underwhelming player, he's achieved a hell of a lot. Perhaps Yuri had had a knack of affiliating himself with the very, very best sides in each of these nations. I don't really remember much of what he did at Chelsea. I remember him being one of those signings and thinking, oh, okay, maybe this guy's good. And he just didn't quite fulfil it. I have to say it's it's a bit annoying that he's up against Akos Buzaki for a position in this team because I would have loved to see their long shooting combine. Uh, they would have been very good teammates. Honestly, any clearance to the edge of the box, you'd have both of them kind of lurking, <laughs> competing with each other. Yeah, a very, very good shout for this team. Good player and look forward to seeing who wins this vote. Okay, on the bench, I had one particular name spring out to me and he was competing with Ronnie Eklund okay. for that left midfield slot. I very, very nearly picked Artem Shakiri, uh, the <laughs> West Brom winger, most famous, of course, for scoring an iconic goal for Macedonia against England direct from a corner. <laughs> oh, man. What a guy. Um, a really, really good winger. Any names for you, Ben? Yeah, one I'd like to just throw in was uh, Manchester City centre-back David Somme. I'd, <laughs> I'd completely forgotten of his existence, but in the end, I felt Camille Zayat's calamity uh, deserved a place in an 11. To recap on the team, we have Jürgen Macho in goal, a back four of Belhaj, Leacock, Zayat and Agat. In midfield, we have Hossem Ghali and either Yarosic, Buzaki or Damien Francis. On the right, we have Sol Ki-hyun. On the left, Ronnie Eklund. And then up front, we have Strakwa Lursi and Mifsud. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.